on the record flips to the B side. B-side, the tape is always rolling, but sometimes the most interesting sounds we collect end up on the cutting room floor. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month on B-side, sounds that didn't make the cut, as on the record, flips to the B-side. A couple of years ago, I was on assignment in Los Angeles doing a story about the bus riders union. It was a pretty typical short news story. What does the union say? What does the government say? The end. So, like a good little radio reporter, I was standing outside the union building gathering background sound for the piece. Cars going by, a bus pulling away from the curb, things like that. And then this happened. Someone ran a red light and a bus actually crashed into a Honda Civic right in front of me. Everyone was okay and I ended up with a piece of recorded sound that had no place in my story, or any other story for that matter, until now. For every five minute story you hear on B-Side, our producers gather something like two hours of tape. There are good reasons you don't hear most of it. Some clips are too loud, too soft, too random, or just too freaking boring. But this month on B-Side, our best audio outtakes. Our first clip comes from Peter Crimmins. He recently did a story for a public radio show called Studio 360 that involved some sounds you don't hear every day. I interviewed him about his experience. Uh, I went skydiving a few weeks ago for the very first time. I jumped out of a plane 13,000 feet. I, I fell 13,000 feet out of a plane. And why, why did you do that? I did it for work-related reasons, actually. I was assigned or commissioned to do a piece about a guy who skydives. And so part of the piece was that I had to sort of know what it's like to fall out of a plane, or else I couldn't really do, do the man justice and do skydiving justice without really knowing what it's like. Was there some kind of training build-up to this, or was it just like, okay, here's my opportunity, go? There's no training at all. What they do is, I, don't, I didn't actually jump myself. I was harnessed to a person. And basically, the harness is, is designed so that I'm strapped to his belly. It, it's like a baby sling almost. And he does the pulling of the cords and the steering of the parachute and, and the jumping out of the plane, actually. I don't actually, actually physically build up the courage to jump because he jumps for me. I'm just attached to him. It sounds like a wind tunnel. It's uh, all you're floating through is a column of air. Um, it's enormously loud and 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 windy um, and constant. It's not like gusts of wind. I mean, when you're on the earth, if, if it's windy weather, wind comes in gusts. This is constant for 60 seconds. And then when he pulls the chute, it gets very very quiet. And it gets kind of peaceful. At that point, the ride, the, the thrill ride is kind of over by that point. And then you're hanging from a canopy, uh, just sort of floating around. 
Do you talk to him? What does he say to you? Well, because of the way you're strapped to the guy, when, when the canopy opens, you're no longer horizontal. You're, you're, you're like sitting up. And it takes a long time. It took us a minute to drop 6,000 feet. It took us about 10 minutes to drop the, the 7,000 feet, the rest of the way down. And you're looking around at the scenery, and you're looking at the horizon. And I, maybe it was a mistake, I started to make small talk with the guy behind me. I, you know, and because I, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm strapped to his belly, and it seemed polite to just sort of strike up conversation. I, I should have been ooing and aahing the the amazing um, position I was in at the time, seven thousand feet above the earth, floating. But instead, I asked him, um, "Do you dive around here a lot?" When Peter turned in the first draft of his script, his editor told him he needed to take himself out of the piece and focus more on the person he was profiling. So the sounds of Peter's maiden skydive never made it on the air. Back on solid ground, Peter is a producer and editor living in Berkeley, California. That sound is the answer to the question, what happens when a tree falls in the forest and a reporter is there to record it? Our next piece comes from Hershey, Pennsylvania, chocolate capital of the world. Producer Renee Gattel sent this audio postcard. Chocolate Town, USA, Hershey, Pennsylvania the home of the Great American Chocolate Bar, and the location of the world's largest chocolate factory. Dear B-Side, greetings from Chocolate World, home to Hershey Foods. Hershey stopped tours of the actual chocolate factory 30 years ago. As the story goes, they had so many requests for tours, it was no longer sanitary, so they built a ride. Now let's go inside the plant and meet some of the Hershey people and take a look at the process of manufacturing chocolate products. For your safety, please stay seated and keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times. You step on a moving platform and get into a pod moving slowly on a track. It's Disneyland meets corporate indoctrination. Here at the yard, cocoa beans arrive from tropical areas all over the world and are unloaded by hand, then transported to storage silos until needed. The cocoa beans next travel on a conveyor to the screening and cleaning machines like the one on the right. Any dried pods, stones, or other foreign matter are carefully removed, and the beans are thoroughly cleaned to ensure that they meet Hershey's high-quality standards. The life of a Hershey's chocolate bar is recreated. Beans are plucked from a plastic rainforest, then sifted on pretend conveyor belts. A bank of video screens show beans pressed into a non-alcoholic chocolate liqueur, then they add milk. You folks have probably noticed a few farms like this around here. 
They're dairy farms, and they supply a very important ingredient needed to produce the famous Hershey flavor and smoothness. Fresh, wholesome milk. Hundreds of farms around this region and thousands of cows supply up to two million pounds of milk each day. This is how Hershey chocolate gets its special flavor and the extra added nutritional value. The ride carries with it a strong plasticky smell of chocolate. It's difficult to tell if this smell comes from candy in the gift shop at the end of the ride or from choco vents hidden in the ceiling. This is the central blending operation, the heart of Hershey's chocolate making process. Here, milk, sugar, and chocolate liquor are brought together and mixed in just the right proportions to create the special Hershey taste. The blending of these ingredients is carefully monitored, and the result of the process is a mixture known as chocolate crumb. The chocolate crumb is mixed with cocoa butter, and the mixture is dumped into molds that look glued to a conveyor belt. The molds enter a cooling tunnel, and in the blink of an eye, they're emptied and fake chocolate bars are wrapped in Hershey's signature brown paper, and fake kisses are squirted out and covered in silver foil. The ride ends with a cute little homage to Hershey's distribution network. And yes, you get a free chocolate bar at the end. Love from Pennsylvania. For B-Side, I'm Renee Gattel. No, that was not a chocolate cow from Pennsylvania. That, my friends, is a real live dairy cow from California's Central Valley. Cows don't usually moo like this. Happy cows are pretty quiet, but this Bessie was agitated. She had just been separated from her calf and wasn't going to let her go quietly. Let's hear it again. Though not quite as vocal, Alaskan musk oxen are the subject of this next audio portrait. Sarah Neal was introduced to a whole herd of them by Sandy Grabowski, a research aide at the Large Animal Research Station, also known as the Musk Ox Farm, in Fairbanks, Alaska. They're not very tall, actually. They're much smaller than a bison. People think of bison when they think of musk ox, and they're surprised when they see the musk ox up close, and he's maybe three, three and a half feet tall. They're real hairy on the outside, but then underneath that is a really thick, kind of a gray-brown, wool. It's finer than cashmere, very warm, very luxurious, not scratchy at all. We're just standing in the middle of them and they aren't doing anything. I'm just kind of, kind of watching to see what's up. This is Hannah. Behind her is Strangle. Strangle, it's kind of an odd name, but she was named for Strangle Woman Lake, so it's actually a place name. A lot of these animals have names that are actually Alaskan, Canadian, or Siberian place names. Anna deer. Call their name and they stand up. <laughs> and uh, Maud, she's one of our older cows out here. She's 16 or 17 years old. She used to be famous in her day, I guess, for charging people, but she's mellowed out with age. 
you know, reindeer, you kind of go boo and you scare them and they tend to run away. These guys, when they're scared, they turn around and they face you because that's their defense. You know, the little Dutch boy horns and, and then you're standing there going, shoo, shoo, you know, and they're standing there looking at you going, no, I'm not going to move. <laughs> so they're good animals. Do the animals make you laugh? Oh, yeah. You've seen that we have a lot of ravens out here, and in the winter they'll actually come and, and kind of congregate here before taking off to McDonald's or the dumpsters or whatever for the day. And so I wanted to see how far back in the trees their roost might be. So I got out here before daylight one day, and all the animals were in the next field over. So, you know, I say good morning to them, and just like this, they, they stay laying down, and they're walking into the woods. You know, because I was going to go sneaking back there and see where the ravens were. Well, a couple of them looked and said, this sounds like a good idea. I got 26 of my closest friends sneaking back there with me, you know. It was kind of weird because it's dark, so all you have are these dark forms moving along with you. But, you know, I've never kind of moved in a herd of muskox in the dark like that. So it was kind of fun. We never did find the ravens, but... Uh... <laughs> How cold do you think it is right now? Um, maybe 10 below. Your hair is freezing. Oh. <laughs> how, how much snow do we have? We've probably got maybe six inches on the ground. This is a nice comfortable day for them. You'll see them, yeah, you'll see them running around and playing in this kind of weather. They jump and spin and... Uh... Zane. Oh, it can be a lot louder and you know during the rut. It's it's one of those sounds like if you're in a tent someplace, you know, camping and you heard it outside your tent, you wouldn't be expecting to see a muskox outside. You'd be wondering if the saber tooths hadn't come back. <laughs> Sarah Neal lives and works among many strange animals in Fairbanks, Alaska. That's some sound I gathered on a family vacation in Jamaica this summer. They're tiny tree frogs, and you can barely see them, but they are everywhere. Listen. Gabriel Spitzer recently had a similar run-in with the animal world in Japan. It was my second week at a new job in Alaska when a call came into our newsroom. A local touring company was beginning direct flights between Anchorage and Tokyo, and they had a few seats on the plane for reporters. It was a sheer fluke that I landed a seat, being the absolute lowest in the pecking order at the office. One guy was out of town, another woman had out-of-town guests, another guy's passport was expired. So it plunked down the ladder rung by rung, and I wound up going. It consisted of flying to Japan, staying for about 17 hours, and then flying home. 
When I arrived, I had a rather rude awakening. You see, I was under the mistaken impression that the signs in Japan would actually have some English on them. Not so. And the labyrinthine public transportation there, complete with multiple trains, subways, buses, and monorails, was just too much for me to handle. So I limited my travels to the area immediately surrounding my hotel. The park was about a half a mile away, so I took a walk down there at sunset. What I discovered was this. These are some sort of mutant cicadas. I haven't the slightest idea what kind of bugs they are, or why they sound like the love child of a rave DJ and a bandsaw. They were hanging out in some painstakingly manicured trees. The island this park is on is otherwise occupied entirely by skyscrapers, multi-story malls, and big hotels. The bugs live in this little pocket of wildness on an island made of fill, steel, and concrete, where 15 years ago there was nothing but harbor. For B-Side, I'm Gabriel Spitzer. believe it or not, is the sound of one man singing. Besides, Dave Gilson made this recording and explains. His name is Kongar Ol Andar, and he comes from the tiny Russian Republic of Tuva in Central Asia. Back home, he's known as his country's most famous throat singer. A good throat singer like Andar can sing two, even three different notes at once. It's not easy, but you can try it at home. Start in the back of your throat and make a noise that's somewhere between humming and gargling. Now try opening your throat to change the sound. After a few seconds of this, your face has probably turned red and you sound like a dying animal. Here, I'll demonstrate. <laughs> you get the idea. A couple of years ago, a documentary called Genghis Blues introduced Andar to America. Shortly afterwards, he came here on tour. I came across him giving a live performance at a record store in San Francisco, and I just happened to have my tape recorder handy. That's Ondar, recorded by Dave Gilson. 
But this guy doesn't just do traditional throat singing. Here's Andar with a piece you might be more likely to hear in a club than in the mountains of Tuva. This cut is from Andar's album, Back Tuva Future. Get it? You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Got something to say about what you've heard so far on today's show? Send us your comments, see photos of our recent radio adventures, and listen to past shows online at bside-radio.org. And now stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-Side. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're listening to the sounds we've recorded over the years that never got a proper airing. Until now. Like these birds sent to us by Jeff Brady. They were squawking so loudly he had to stop the interview he was doing. Here's another bit of sound that made us stop in our tracks. This was sent to us by Hank Sims in Humboldt County, California. Hank created it to help his wife remember a tune she sang to her kindergarten class. Every summer, an enormous crowd gathers in the Nevada desert for Burning Man, a visual feast of art, indulgence, and fire. Jeff Chorney went to Burning Man last Labor Day weekend and put together this sound montage. Welcome Hola! Welcome! Is this your first time here? So you know the rules about the porta potties, all right? The yeah. only thing that goes in them is what comes out of your body. All right, so leave no trace. Remember, it's a community that we all support each other and we do everything respectful, we have no rules, you can do whatever you want, just respect each other and the environment. All right? And pick I love up, you. move, on you go. All right. All right, welcome home, have a great time. And remember, five miles an hour, stay on the outer roads, okay? person drum fire DJ uh, aerial and freak assault we're kind of like a futuristic circus with tentacles stretching into the ancient past with our tribal drums and fire performance and into the distant future with our computers and mutated technology
about fire art, a lot of it is technology-based, and a lot of it is rather dangerous, and consequently cannot be tested until we actually arrive here on the playa, at least that the fire marshal arrests us for arson. As we progress with Kiki's first test here of the Egeria, we're going to enjoy the pyrocycles here. change people one at a time. And as you touch them one at a time, then they'll maybe change one or two people. And you can you can take that and really create a wave of force that, that no one can stop. You know, that's why I come out here and I work my butt off, is to touch as many people as I can. And I know that the fire brings them in. This montage was produced by Jeff Chorney, a newspaper reporter from Sacramento, California. And finally, while Fire at Burning Man is a work of art, the immense wildfires in Southern California this past fall reminded us all that fire is also a force of destruction. B-Side's Tamara Keith was sent to the heart of the fires to report on the damage. Fire really hits all of your senses. It's not just about the sight of the flames or the smell of the smoke, but there are so many sounds. There's this whole sound that comes with the effort of fighting the blaze. The helicopters overhead and the air tankers. Water shooting out of hoses, firefighters clearing fire breaks with sheer might, shovels and axes. On my second day covering the fire, I went to this little town called Kuiamaka. The day before, the fire had rushed through and basically destroyed the town. I stopped on one street and sat in my car, just taking in the damage. That house there, it had, it was completely burned to the ground. You could see where the couch was and, and, and like the, the highest point in what was once a house were these three statues of Mary, of the Virgin Mary, just standing there two feet high above the ruins of the house that was once there. 
From this neighborhood, I went way up a winding road to another community, this one even smaller. Firefighters weren't even able to get in here to make any attempt at saving the homes. It was just too dangerous. There would have been no way out. But amazingly, there were a couple of homes standing. And at this one house, the flames came all the way up to the edge of the house. It burned all of their landscaping. The house was blue with white trim. And on the porch, there was a wind chime. This piece was produced by Tamara Keith, B-Side's favorite senior producer. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on February 11th with a sensational show about sensations. In the meantime, On the Record is back January 28th. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.